0: Welcome to The Breakdown with Brodkamp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Michael Broadcorp.
1: And I'm Becky Scher.
0: On this week's episode, we're breaking down a new CNN poll showing only one-third of Americans say President Biden deserves re-election. We break down the misfire by the Tennessee GOP to expel two members of the Tennessee House of Representatives... We'll also break down two updates on previous subjects. Mike Murphy announces his run for Congress in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District. And an update on Winona LaDuke, who resigned last week from out of the earth. We'll also have a highly divisive conversation on ham versus turkey, which led to an online debate between Becky and I. And we're also excited to be joined this episode by Jim Schultz, the 2022 gop endorsed candidate for attorney general. We're gonna talk about his recent op-ed, a lot of Republicans can and must win in Minnesota, and a recent dust up between current Attorney General Keith Ellison and Hennepin County Attorney Mary Moriarty. Let's kick things off. Let's start with CNN. Yeah. Hey, first, first of all, let me just let me interrupt you if I may, which I sometimes do quite a bit. I you apologize. May. I just want to say I got a lot of compliments and feedback about our last episode with Representative Hudson and Jeff Kolb was our most downloaded episode. What I heard from people that they liked was number one, a lot of compliments about the length, that they were not upset about the fact that it was such a long episode, which I know there was some, we had some concerns about it being a long episode. Number two, they were very appreciative that everyone got to speak and that no one was interrupted. And so I think that is a template and a format that we should look for every so often to do which is longer shows giving people an opportunity to speak not and you know what I mean by that is we don't have a pattern of cutting people off but I think one of the things we've tried to do is keep the podcast tidy and timely and somewhat brief or just to give that 60 no more than an hour length of time you of course can be very long-winded I I know much more brief, but it was. I got a lot of compliments about that. So that's a, a topic that's a format I think we should do on future episodes. Your take?
1: Absolutely. I think it's. I think we've established ourselves to have the ability to talk with everybody, the folks that we agree with, disagree with, have respectful conversations, give them the opportunity to share their opinions and thoughts, even though even if it's not something we personally believe in, and hopefully keep things entertaining as we go. So I am glad that people were receptive to that impressed that people decided to stick around for, I think it was almost an hour and a half. Glad you're not sick of our voices. I apologize. I have a cough and a little bit of a cold. So I hope my voice isn't too nasally today and you just want to stick it through to the end.
0: Again, and I want to say this again, Becky, I thank you for that last episode. You had it was, there was just a lot of patience on your side. It was longer. And thank you again for being a partner in creating that type of space. I will say again, a lot of compliments from people just about us having that type of environment. I think we've really created, it's been a good team effort. I think we've created a really fun space, a safe space for people to have conversations.
1: And I think I need to let you pat my back, I pat yours. But I think it does also need to be shared that obviously that was a situation where you two had battled it out on Twitter a little bit and for you to be able to not only have that conversation but bring him into our sandbox here and play nice and have a conversation about something you're clearly very passionate about i think is incredible you've done a lot of work in that sector written a best amazon best-selling book on it and i think the fact that you welcomed him with open arms to sit down and have a conversation in this space that we've created i applaud you for that so thank you as well
0: thank you so much Let's talk about this poll with this new CM poll, which I was surprised about. Why don't you kick it off?
1: Yeah. So let's just kick it off with some of the numbers here. As you mentioned in the top, only one-third of Americans say that President Joe Biden deserves to be re-elected. A majority of in his party say they would like to see someone else as a Democratic nominee for president next year. Not always the case as we go through an incumbent candidate here. Also, just a couple more numbers I'll throw, and then we can chat through them. When looking, again, this is a CNN poll. It was completed before or right before the Trump indictment, so just that doesn't have any weighing on this. When they look at registered Democrats, only 44% say Biden should be the nominee. So even his own party do not want him. Surprisingly, though, this is an improvement. Last summer, 75% of registered Democrats say they would prefer a different candidate. I think, wow, I didn't know that Democrat poll numbers could look as bad as Trump Republican poll numbers, but apparently they can. I was. It is no surprise. You and I talk a lot about Biden. We don't want him. He's he's unfit for office. That it has shown at certain times, he is not being a good leader. He is not talking to the press. He is not being a public leader that we want or expect of our president, and really is telling. This by the poll that only 33% of Americans and 44% of Democrats even want him to be the nominee or want him to stick around for a second term. We've had enough of Joe Biden. What do you think about it?
0: I was surprised by the numbers. And I think it goes back to a discussion point that we've had, which is I think that we would both want to don't wish ill will on any politician, but I think that we're both, I think we both have been of the opinion that it would be nice to get some fresh, new blood in both the Democratic and the Republican Party. And I think that's what this is reflective of. I think that there's a sense of loyalty to Biden being the president. But one of the things that I think is happening is that kids are growing up, people are getting older, and the newer generation wants and sees different things. And these candidates that in some ways seem old to me, old to you, imagine how these candidates look to 18-year-olds, people just starting to vote. And I think it's going to be, I still believe it's going to be Biden. And I still believe it's going to be Trump, which is very depressing just from just to think of all the people in the United States, as I've said before, that it comes down to those two being the nominees for a major party. But it shows that there's vulnerabilities, at least in the polling numbers, it shows there's some vulnerabilities with Biden. Do I think he'll be the nominee. As I've just said, I believe he did. And we had Chairman Han on a couple of weeks ago and Chairman Han had some intel that from the DFL party chair in Minnesota, that Biden and Harris would be announcing within the next few weeks. And we're almost to that next few week point. So I would be looking for an announcement here relatively soon, a formal announcement, but the poll does show some vulnerabilities.
1: You mentioned younger people. There is a comment in there, some results in this poll where the young adults—that's where the largest shift is. They just twenty-six percent of those younger than thirty-five say Biden deserves another ch- another term in the poll in office, and that's down from thirty-six just in December. So in December, thirty-six percent of those under thirty-five said sure we could take another Biden. Since then, only twenty-six percent. So that's a huge drop. And then a couple other things I wanted to just touch base on real quick of issues. Biden's numbers are also pretty poor. The economy wasn't super surprising to me. 37% approval ratings on the economy. Gun policy is was a little bit more surprising. He hasn't done, we've been outspoken about it, especially in the wake of recent tragedies, but approval on gun policy, only 37%. Anything surprising there for you?
0: It is surprising me. The youth is what's surprising me. I think that then, and their passion Um, their intensity about issues. I don't remember when I was that young being that impatient. And that's not a criticism or knock against them, but we're just dealing with, I think, some very meaty substantive issues more than there was at least when I was growing up. And I think it would be really interesting at some point if we were to get try to find some 18, 19-year-old, maybe some college kids to come in and talk with them a little bit more about vets and Republicans or people that identify, I think it would be good to have a conversation because I think that this is what is really going to shape this election. You're seeing that all over the place. youth and energy and enthusiasm. And they're not beholden to tradition and party and nostalgia. They want change and they want it now. And they're not wrong. And I think that's going to be a real message this election cycle. I think we, we talk about their voters every cycle. One of the things that you and I have talked about is female voters, the importance of female voters and Republicans connecting with them. I think the block that's really going to drive this, that has the potential to drive this next election is going to be the youth vote. People who are voting for the first time, people of 18, 19, 20 year olds, in the college kids. Those kids, I think, are going to be a real motivating force this upcoming election cycle. And I worry, as someone who does want the Republicans to succeed, and we're going to hopefully talk about this in a later subject, that the Republican brand is not as connected to those younger kids that are coming in. And it's a subject we can talk about in later. But I think this polling is quite, it's quite. It just paused me when I saw it, and I knew that we needed to discuss it here on our podcast.
1: Yeah, let's put a pin in that. I think it would be a great conversation to come back to. I think we've touched on a little bit my frustrations with the Republican Party, and how it doesn't necessarily reflect my beliefs and some of my friends my age. And I think it would be certainly a good conversation. One thing that did surprise me last comment I'll have on this poll is that while majority want a different candidate, no other candidate named received over 5%. So seven of 10 say they just generally want to see somebody else other than Biden. Bernie Sanders was The top getter of those that had an opinion with 5%, Pete Buttigieg got four, Kamala Harris, Michelle Obama, both at three, and so on and so forth. So it's not as though there is somebody clamoring at the door to, to take over that. However, segue into our next topic. There is somebody stepping up to this possible position, right? The illustrious Kennedy family. So we've
0: got Kennedy Kennedy Jr. announced he is going to challenge Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. Your thoughts?
1: It certainly comes with some name ID. So we'll give that. One tweet that I saw that was telling, and maybe I'm stealing the wind from your sails because you may have sent this to me. But that said, worth noting that no incumbent Democrat president who has been primaried by a member of the Kennedy family has ever won re-election. So that is impressive. Effect. But I would say Kennedy is a little bit, maybe a black sheep of the Kennedy family.
0: Yes. Um, first of all, I think he is, Kennedy running on the Democratic side is interesting. They have a long history. The modern The Democratic Party and the Kennedys go together. PB and J and peanut butter and jelly. That's that's their brand. That's their party. But there's a lot of Republicans who have identified and hoist and used a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Particularly during COVID. He is a known promoter of a variety of conspiracy theories related to COVID and other ailments and diseases, and of just a bizarre individual on that issue. And I don't know that when people are looking for a new person, a new name, new blood, I don't know if they mean Kennedy. And I certainly don't think they would know Robert F. Kennedy. I do have, and to prepare our listeners, I do have a little bit of an interesting story about Robert F. Kennedy that I'd like to share. And I will I will and my 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 illustrious co host does not know this story. And so I'm gonna be curious her reaction. Oh I saw Robert F. Kennedy naked once.
1: Oh, Oh okay. Wow I think we need a little more context maybe.
0: 1995. Do I want more context? It's not as juicy as it sounds. I, so I worked on Boschwitz's campaign, Rudy Boschwitz's U.S. campaign in 96. And it's something that we had mentioned before we're going to do. We're going to talk more about our political histories and stuff. I've had a lot of people ask about that. And th- what better way to jump off than me seeing a naked RFK junior? And so Boschwitz's campaign office was on Wyzetta Boulevard, St. Louis Park. St. Louis Park. I lived in St. Louis Park at the time. And I used to work out at what used to be a Northwest Athletics Club on Xerxes Highway 100 area. And one night I was working at the campaign office, got done wanted to go to the club, went to the club, walked in the locker room, came around the corner. There's RFK at a locker, RFK Jr. locker, getting changed. I walked around the corner and I saw him there. And I said, you're Robert Kennedy Jr. What are you doing here? first thing I said to him and he said I was in town I was at, we're gonna say at the Minneapolis Club but I couldn't work out there so I wanted a place to work out here and he's standing there and the,
1: no, the I'm thing. sorry I gotta interrupt one question so you turn around the corner you see him standing there you ask him what he's doing there is he naked at this time
0: yes he is but it- like his yeah and so he's like putting a towel around and I said what are you doing here? He said he was in town, I think, for a speech. He was doing something at the Minneapolis club. He couldn't work out there. So this was the closest place he worked out. And I said, oh, I said, followed your I read about your dad in college and politics. I said, I was admire him. I wish you the best. Hope you have a safe time here. And i like, it was so bizarre. I just went to another locker and went away. And I haven't told a bunch of people that story. And it was a really bizarre thing. And so when he announced... I've been, I told you I had a bizarre story about him, but yeah, that was it. And it was just weird because I have this thing. I just did not expect that. I did not expect to walk around a corner in, a, in, in an athletic club at St. Louis Park at probably 8 or 9 o'clock at night, if not later, to see Robert Kennedy Jr. standing there changing in a locker. But every time I literally... see am my... oh,
1: sorry, sorry, I didn't interrupt. These are the kind of stories why Twitter is a thing, right? If there was a Twitter back then... You would have tweeted that out. It would have been everywhere, viral on Good Morning America tomorrow.
0: I know it was just weird. And every time I see him, I mean, he's Robert Kennedy Jr. His dad was uh, who his dad was, and the Kennedy family. But every time I think of that, every time I see him on TV, I'm like, man, I saw the guy naked in athletic club once. He
1: that was not,
0: he, a- was, he was reasonable. He was polite. It wasn't awkward. I just went to the next locker. It was. I didn't. I didn't ask for his autograph or anything but it was just i instantly recognized his face i think he was a little surprised too he's rfk junior it wasn't it wasn't like it was john f kennedy junior but it was it was just surprising and he was very polite very kind very respectful as i stood there and questioned him when he was you know, naked and putting his clothes on at a gym locker in st louis park one night
1: that is a great story and i'm sure i have many others on the listening that really?
0: are grateful <laughs> It's great. Did you think that's what the story was going to be?
1: I did, I did not. I did okay. not. I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but it wasn't that.
0: I hope it wasn't. In a, I hope I didn't. I hope it was conveyed in a respectful way and in the lighthearted. kind of Good.
1: good. Uh, one last comment I want to make about the Kennedy family, though. Great book. If you've never read it, Kennedy Curse. And that family has been through it. I tell you, the amount of plane crashes, mysterious deaths. It dates back to the Irish potato famine and great book. Definitely worth a read.
0: I met one final Kennedy story. I met Ted Kennedy on the day Wellstone crashed. Wellstone's plane went down. Ted Kennedy was in town that day for an event for Wellstone. And I was doing research at the party and I ran into Ted Kennedy. I saw Ted Kennedy. It was nice to meet him, but just a terrible day. And we could talk about that at some point down the road. All
1: right. All right. Where should we go
0: to next?
1: I think it's Tennessee Republicans or the, to break our no swearing rule, the shit show in Tennessee.
0: That's really good work on your part. Thanks. Uh, What's your, let's have you teed up, give your take.
1: All right, just laying out the, setting the table as you will. Three Democrat legislators in Tennessee following the Nashville shooting walked arm in arm on, into the House floor chanting no justice, no peace. The Republicans have a supermajority down there. They expelled two of the three, happens to be the two black legislators, two black male legislators. The white woman legislator was not expelled. And since then, the one of them has been reinstated as the Nashville Metropolitan Council, who was responsible with doing so, voted to reappoint him unanimously. He is back in office. The other one, I believe the time of this airing, he is expected to get voted to be reinstated by his county commission today, Wednesday afternoon. So that should likely be done. Just done. What was that?
0: It was just done.
1: Just done. Just yep, done. You behind were the Oh, you were
0: they correct. They were voted
1: to expel... They're now reinstated. A couple things just to go, we'll chat what comes next after this. But this is just, I think, sets a very dangerous precedent for a variety of reasons. I don't necessarily believe that protesting in this forum is... Becoming of an office holder. I don't think that is what is meant for our those who hold election certificates to one would say grandstand in a way if they are not in the when just because they're not getting their way, they're trying to make a statement. I think there is everything that they can go on the Capitol steps, they can stand in the rotunda, they can participate in rallies and marches and do all of that. There's a time and a place for those presentations and to make their voice heard. I a hundred percent understand that. And I agree that something might need to be—we'll get into the gun control debate at a different—later on. So that I don't agree with. I Also, the expulsion. There are ways to censure or reprimand or take away committee assignments or do different things to— quote unquote, punish somebody who, again, is unbecoming of their position or does not stand up to decorum of the chamber. I think this is too far. And I think it sets a really dangerous precedence that a party in control can kick out an election certificate holder just like that.
0: I agree with every point you made. A couple couple questions just to go down a bit. Do you agree, one of the points, I was talking with a neighbor yesterday about this in my driveway on such a beautiful day, and one of the points that I raised to my neighbor about this, and she is a different political background than I do, and one of the points that I was making was that, that if you run to be a part of a legislative body, that you should agree to adhere to the kind of the pomp and circumstance and the decorum of the office, and do you agree with that?
1: Yeah. You're running for your seat. You're not running to make a difference if you get them ma- and only if you get the majority, Correct. you have to represent your folks. Right. And with that comes rules and stipulations.
0: And my point was that I don't think anything that they did warranted an expulsion from the Tennessee House of Representatives, that there were other options that they could have more common sense options if they chose to do anything if they felt that that their conduct was so egregious that it needed to be dealt with, there were more proportional things they could have done to address it other than expelling them from office, correct?
1: Correct. Now, had this been, let's say it was every day for a week or two weeks, you removed them from committee and took away their office or whatever, you t- took other things, then sure, maybe it needs to be part of the conversation if business is not being able to be conducted because of this. It, a lot of the articles I was reading on this also brought up a lot of other Republican indiscretions that by members that were not expelled. It's
0: expelled. very difficult for me, when I was observing this and watching what was going on, you're talking about Representative Justin Jones from Nashville and Justin Pearson from Memphis, both African American males, two of the three that were two that were brought that were in essence tried for their misconduct in the House. As you noted, Representative Gloria Johnson, a white woman, was not expelled. And so here I'm thinking about this putting on my hat as like my the small little Republican hat that I have on my head these days. I'm thinking to myself, okay. You have two African-American members of the House of Representatives in Tennessee. That's who you kick out, who didn't just randomly decide to protest that day, or they didn't just randomly on some, this was in response to a shooting, a shooting at a school. And there was a lot of emotion and intensity to that, not to take away from the emotion and intensity of other subjects. But I do not understand if you just play out what's occurred now, what's occurred now is, first of all, the Republicans look racist. There's no question about it. And it's a fair criticism. You kicked out two young African-American males for, what, they had a bullhorn? That's what you did. And you removed them from the House of Representatives. What's happened, as you correctly noted, in the meantime, is that Representative Jones was reinstated by the National Metropolitan Council, And Rep Pearson was reinstated today by the Shelby County Board of Commissioners. Down in Tennessee, when members are expelled, they can be reinstated until there's a special election by a local governing board. And so they both, so this was temporary. So they were kicked out, I think, for less than a week. What they have, what the Republican Party has just done on there is made national heroes out of these two men. They have built them up. They have made martyrs out of them and they're going to be more powerful, more significant, and they're going to have a louder voice than they did before and as they should. The Republicans down there made a mistake anyone who believed that they should be expelled has not does not has not I think adequately looked at the type of precedents that would need to be required for someone to be expelled and they also haven't looked at their more the more current political behavior particularly that Republicans have gauged in the house i find it very inconsistent for republicans particularly in tennessee to be concerned about the dignity of the chamber in the house of representatives after what occurred on january 6th. and let me be clear there's no there's no correlation between the two there's i don't there's no moral equivalency between the two what occurred on january 6 was reprehensible, was much worse, was deadly, was much more a grave attack on democracy than whatever occurred down in Tennessee.
1: I completely agree. And that is something they used as a kind of an excuse for this, right? They said that this was an attack on democracy of that. Now, do I think what these three Democrats did is appropriate? No, I don't. But it is not anything to do similar to what was done on january 6th it was not an attack on our democracy they were inappropriately protesting but like you mentioned that really does just lift them up and is going to embolden them it's going to embolden a lot of democrat voters in that state i wouldn't be surprised if that it's tennessee so take it for what it's worth but if it has some harmful implications for republicans in the future in fact so this what is they're both reinstated like you mentioned until a special election the governor who is a republican is now required to set a primary date within 60 days of expulsion, they boasted they were going to run for election again. It's just, now you've just wasted everybody's time. A lot of money goes into special elections. They're spending taxpayer dollars on this. It's just a disaster. And one thing I did, I thought I had a note here. I don't. Um, but yeah, I think it's just really unfortunate that this has happened in the first place. One thing that is just really shocking to me is how this got from a conversation or somebody's, you know, flippant idea to expel them, expel them to actually fruition, like how it got through the layers and the hoops. And that one of my roles in my previous jobs was to be the person to poke the holes, right? Let's, I'm going to play devil's advocate on all these different things. This is what this group is going to say. This is what the press is going to say. This is, and figuring out, is it the best step? Is it going to be more beneficial than harm, harmful? What are the optics of it? And, and looking at it from that How this got to actually be a vote, vote, actually expelling these two and not the third individual is just like mind boggling. Who is running that place? I would like to meet them and understand this.
0: You and I have both established that there's nothing in their behavior justified them being expelled. So we both agree on that. So if we just take a step back further and analyze it just from like Republicans, the optics are just horrible. Because Horrible. this argument, it is so simple. It is so simple for people to to look at the situation, particularly when three are up for being expelled. The white woman does not get expelled. And she goes out and, all, and in essence says that it has everything to do with the color of her skin, that she wasn't expelled. And they kick out two African-American members of the Tennessee House of Representatives. It's very difficult for me to not look at this situation and not think it's about race. It has and to, to not, be. And to not think that, a bunch of old white men wanted to kick out up some uppity black men out of the legislature for speaking out of turn, for being, and it's just, it blows my mind, that type of backward thinking, the type of short-sightedness that they did. There was, and it just, it, it, the lack of just general brand awareness of how this would be framed up and how this would look, the optics of this are just simply horrible. And again, you and I agree that their behavior did not rise to the level of being expelled. But this was a bad but, idea that someone got there. This was a bad idea that someone thought was a good idea and didn't think about.
1: And it really is kind of at on its face. It, it is exactly what black Americans have been screaming about for the last few years of being treated differently, that if a black or a white kid was walking down with his hood up, he wouldn't have been shot. If all of these different situations were a white individual versus a black individual, they would not have been happened. They would not have been targeted. And here you literally have two black individuals and a white individual. And they like wrapped it up in a nice bowl saying, here you go. Here's our racist act for the day. It is. It's
0: incredible. It's very difficult to just understand to have to not think it's not about race because it just plainly is and I don't think I I want to think the best of people but the reality is that's what it that's what it is I like to, to not think it was about that but that's what it is just think about here's the other thing as someone as you would describe someone who would, who would point out the step process what did they think was going to come of this you're going to kick them out they're going to be out for a week what's the lesson that's going to be told no one I don't know and here's I don't think anyone thinks it's a proportional response. The other things that I would say is I haven't heard members, Republican members of the Tennessee House of Representatives articulate in any type of strong, consistent voice as to why this was justified. I think that there's been opportunities for them to do that, and they haven't done it because I just think this is a bad idea that got out of hand and no one thought about what the long-term effects are going to be. The long-term effects of this are going to be that for the last week plus, Republicans look like that the only action that they want to take in response to a school shooting was to kick out two African-American men who represent parts, one of them represents part of the districts, affected by the violence, a victim affected by the shooting. They want to kick them out of the legislature in response to it. And the Republicans are going back to a role that a lot of people have talked about was their their embrace and acceptance of building the party, growing the party with youth members of different communities and to kick out two young African-American males is just a boneheaded, short-sighted decision. And long-term, it's a black eye on the Tennessee Republican Party and Republicans as a whole.
1: It's going to be tough to come back from, but I'm sure it's not the last we'll be seeing from that situation.
0: Yes, you are correct. On to our next subjects.
1: Yeah, let's bring it back to Minnesota for a second. Any listener who has been listening for a couple of episodes now may remember a good Michael Bradcorp rant about a Republican candidate for governor in 2022 by the name of Mike Murphy. Mike Murphy has now is running for the second congressional district, and I'm sure my co-host here has some thoughts.
0: We discussed this back in February. There was rumblings that he was going to file and run. And Mike Murphy did announce this week that he's running for Congress in Minnesota's second congressional district. Just to back up a bit, Mike Murphy ran for governor in 2022, played a very significant role at the state convention in ensuring that Scott Jensen won the endorsement at the convention. Mike Murphy endorsed Jensen at a very critical time and was instrumental in Jensen getting the endorsement, which was the end of the general election race. The endorsement of Jensen was a terrible choice by Republicans. Uh, he underperformed the district, and he cost Republicans both the governor's race and other races by p- running poor, so poorly. Uh, Murphy was tied to that decision, tied to that campaign. Murphy, in fact, was the mayor of Lexington. He also lost his reelection in 2022 in Lexington. It's worth noting that Lexington, Minnesota is not in the Minnesota, in Minnesota's second congressional district. It's in the sixth congressional district. In Minnesota, as in other states, in order to run for Congress, you, can represent, you, you just have to be a resident of the state. So I live in Egan, Minnesota. I could run for Congress in any of Minnesota's eight congressional districts. You do not need to live there. It's generally looked upon that it's, make sense for you to live in the district. And when Mike Murphy announced this week that he was running, he he released a video announcing his campaign, none of the images or the locations in his campaign announcement to run for Congress in Minnesota's second congressional district were in the 2nd Congressional District. He also used, it was wearing paraphernalia from his failed gubernatorial campaign. What I think they did is they just recycled some campaign footage, repackaged it, and slapped a logo on the end of the, slapped a graphic on the end of the video, and he's run. I believe the reason why Mike Murphy is running is because this is a targeted race. I live in the 2nd Congressional District, the NRCC, the National Republican Campaign Committee, has said that the 2nd Congressional District is a takeover, is a pickup opportunity for Republicans. Angie Craig has won a couple close elections. Becky, I know you have experience in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District, but I'm not saying Angie Craig deserves to lose. I'm not saying she needs to be out. But as someone who has argued for Republicans, I believe in balancing government. I want Republicans to run smart campaign. We are not off to a good start with Mike Murphy.
1: The whole photos from a different district different state is so silly to me because it's checked every year I was on a campaign I'm not going to name the year because it's going to tell everybody what campaign it was but a number of years ago that got called out for their website having lakes being from different states every year for the last 10-12 years that I've been working in politics people check either take your own photos or or find stock photos that are from the state of Minnesota, from the district, not that hard, you're going to get busted. It's like the easiest thing in such a stupid way to start out losing some credibility, right? Now, is it? does it matter that much? Not eh, Maybe not, but it just looks silly. It looks like you're not running a competent campaign.
0: No, and here's the other thing. Mike Murphy's wife was elected to the school board in Centennial, which is in the sixth district. So- Mike Murphy, it would be very difficult for Murphy to move to the district and to live, which is a statement he made to the press is that he was considering a run, considering a move to the second district while running. It is poor form. Now, interest of disclosure, Jason Lewis was elected to Congress. He lived just outside the district he represented. It wasn't an issue. It was a couple miles out. It wasn't that far away. But Murphy has no bona fides, no connection in his present life to the district through himself. His wife is an elected official outside of the district. And so it would be difficult for the family to move for her to keep her seat on the school board. Aside from the fact, it just shows bad tactics and strategies. And it's something that we have talked about consistently since the aftermath of the 2022 election in Minnesota, that Republicans have to run smarter campaigns. When you announce a campaign for Congress in a targeted congressional seat, and you release a campaign video, and you can't even be bothered to shoot video from the district in your video when you announce or just take a day trip and shoot it on your phone it just shows that you're phoning it in it shows that you're just checking boxes that you're not a serious campaign you're not a serious candidate and you're not a serious campaign now mike murphy did do very mike murphy was very helpful to scott jensen winning the endorsement and the second congressional district was very strong for Scott Jensen at the state convention. And so I think probably the calculus that Murphy's campaign team is making is, obviously, the the second congressional district was strong for Jensen at the state convention, and Mike Murphy was helpful in getting the endorsement for Scott Jensen. Therefore, this gives Mike Murphy a leg up in the endorsement process. That all may be true. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't put Mike Murphy in a credible position to win the second congressional district race. And I think independent of whether we get to the election, and as I said, I'm not saying Angie Craig deserves to lose or should she should be voted out of office. But I think the position that you and I have advocated for, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if Republicans if we want, if Republicans are going to start succeeding in this state, they have to run smart campaigns and this is not a smart campaign to, this is not a way to run a smart campaign and murphy is should be taken as seriously as he's presented himself which isn't very serious at all
1: and i think it, it is very similar kind of to what we talked about last week or the week before about how president trump is likely to get be able to get the nominee but is going to do poor in the general sure mike murphy could very well get the endorsement but that's not going to translate to the general election As you mentioned, I did work in the second. I managed Jason Lewis's re-election campaign in 2018. We did come up short. Angie Craig was elected at that time. And I will say, as he was a sitting congressman when I managed his campaign, he had done a lot of work. He had bills that had passed. He had, and we did a lot of work. And to think that you mentioned Mike Murphy thinking that he wants to run for this because the NRC is gonna come in. There's a lot of hoops to jump through to get that money to come in. So just to think that you're going to run in a campaign in a district where the NRCC currently has on their target list, those targets can easily be wiped away if it's a candidate that's not worth sinking millions of dollars into, right? They have a they're going to be spread very thin this year or this cycle in particular with how many seats they need to either play defense on or try to win back from the last cycle. And so having a candidate like Mike Murphy is going to, potentially cost Minnesota Republicans somewhere between two, five million dollars of outside money.
0: It's a fantastic point. We've touched on this before, but, and I want to just revisit the subject, which is your perspective in kind of closing out this subject. Give us the last word, your take on how you see the 2nd Congressional District in your experience and what type of candidate you think, if you're in a laboratory coming up with the best type of candidate, what do you think are the qualities that that would be needed in order to be a credible challenger.
1: Now, listen, I spent a lot of time beating up on Angie Craig, but she is actually doing a decent job. She's keeping her head down. She's not making waves. She's staying in the middle. She's not, I would say, being part of any far-left radical kind of policy work for her right now. And so I think she is going to be tough to take down. So I think it what it's going to take is somebody who... Is an effective messenger who is going to be articulate and thoughtful and take a lot of time out in the district that you know an incumbent isn't able to do because they have to split their time between D.C. and Minnesota. I think, in particular, if I was in charge of finding somebody, obviously a woman would be the top of my list. If you can have a woman go up against Angie Craig, that does do move some folks right off the bat. Somebody, if there is a former elected, a mayor, somebody that does have some lawmaking or executive experience is always great, or a business leader. I'm always a big fan of a small business leader, somebody who can speak to, in particular, some of the issues that we're, our economy is facing, that Main Street Minnesota is facing, and speak to if we have. So my ideal candidate would be a female small business owner and a mother.
0: Right. So I not, would not be a failed gubernatorial candidate who was the mayor of a city that's outside the district?
1: Not my top of my list. no.
0: Okay. it's good to know. It's good to know you brought some clarity. Well th- that's thanks and we'll uh, hopefully we'll I live in the district. Obviously we'll. it's a focus it's going to be a, it will likely be fair to say it will probably be the most contested congressional district this next election cycle. So it'll be something that we'll be talking about and focused on. And we'll come back to it again. The subject will come on. And again, Mike Murphy, you are welcome to come on at any point. I don't want it to be an entire screaming match, but you are invited to come on. And we probably should invite him on since we've talked about him. But yeah, I don't know how productive the conversation would be, but we should probably do that. Uh, next subject.
1: He says begrudgingly. Next, uh, next subject. I think just a little bit of a wrap up of another discussion we had recently. Winona LaDuke, founder of Honor the Earth, she had been in some legal trouble, and we talked a little bit about the le- piece of legislation going through that would curate some goods from Honor the Earth as part of a Native American exhibit, all of that kind of thing. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong. The news of the week is more on her position with Honor the Earth and the outcome of a civil trial that was going on.
0: We first discussed this because of a legislative hearing that Winona LaDuke testified on. We've gotten some feedback over the course of doing these interviews with legislators, mostly from the Republican side, I think the, the feedback has been that they're moving in a, Democrats are moving in a little bit of too fast of a pace. And there was a legislative hearing where a Republican legislator had asked some questions about some funding that would go to a facility that was in some ways connected to Winona LaDuke. And what came out in the committee hearing was, questions about this lawsuit that had been filed against Winona LaDuke. Sorry, been filed against Honor of the Earth, which she helped found and was in the leadership of. In since we recorded that episode, since we talked about it, that trial happened up in Becker County. And the woman who filed the lawsuit was awarded $750,000 by a jury, Margaret Campbell was her name, against Honor of the Earth. And then a couple days later, Winona LaDuke resigned from the head of, of Honor of the Earth. And so... I think what it shows is two things. I think it shows, number one, that state representative who raised the questions in the committee hearing about the appropriateness of Winona Ladue coming in and questions about the funding. Those were well-founded. Those were well-founded questions because just a couple weeks later, less than that, actually, the lawsuit, the lawsuit came to fruition in a court trial and a jury awarded, unanimously rewarded a sizable amount of money, $750,000 related to claims of sexual harassment and retaliation and retribution. So that was significant. And I think it also shows that that was the main point I wanted to make, but also just general examination review of Winona LaDuke. This is a prominent leader in the Native American community in Minnesota, but also... In DFL politics. And she is someone who has been appeared at multiple press conferences with elected officials over the years, again, just at the legislature a few weeks ago, testifying in committee in a very kind of free spirit, free spirit way. And you would think that someone who was in the midst of this type of litigation that would lead so quickly to their exodus from the organization that they helped found would have been a little bit more careful in just their presentation and their appearance at the committee. But the but the Republican legislator who raised concerns about Leduc was justified in doing so, was criticized for doing so. And in retrospect, I think it does show that the concerns about Lenona Leduc, the, the connection to her related to this funding were, were well placed. There should have been a closer examination on that. And maybe the DFL is moving a little too fast at the legislature.
1: I completely agree. It seems that they needed to take a beat, listen to the Republicans. Even if they disagree with what they're saying, there can be some points and not always irrelevant, as Democrats might think that we are.
0: We're excited to be joined in this episode by Jim Schultz, the 2022 GOP-endorsed candidate for attorney general talk about what he experienced, what he went through the last election cycle, and also talk about a recent op-ed he wrote about how Republicans can and must win in Minnesota. Sir, it's great to have you with us today. Yeah, good to meet with you, Michael and Becky. Thanks for the invitation. Let's jump right to it. You were the Republican-endorsed candidate for attorney general in 2022, this last election cycle. You came up very close, lost by less than a point statewide to Keith Allison. One of the issues, one of the main issues that you talked about in that race was public safety. And a point that you made on the campaign was about public safety and the role of the Attorney General in working with local county attorneys. That issue blew up a bit last week in relation to the Attorney General, Keith Ellison, and the new Hennepin County Attorney, Mary Moriarty. Why don't you explain to our listeners that issue, how it came up in the race, and how the developments of the last week exposed an inconsistency about Allison's campaign on a point that you made that I articulated that you were right about. But keep going. You go ahead, yeah. sir.
2: Yeah, thanks, Michael. Yeah, it's great to be on with you. Thanks again for the invitation. The, uh, so essentially, the issue is this. We have in Mary Moriarty, a I think, safe to say she's a county attorney, a county attorney, largest county in the state, who is, I think, I think completely fair to say she's unfit for office. And she's shown that in a few ways. And she most recently showed it by agreeing to essentially a two-year plea deal for individuals guilt accused, for which there's credible evidence, but that where they essentially executed a woman. And she agreed to a two-year plea deal on the basis that they're minors. And and that's absolutely unacceptable. And Keith Ellison and Tim Walls essentially took the case away from, from her. Under state statute, the only way, essentially the only way, there's some exceptions to take a case away is, is if the governor requests it or if the Hattapen County attorney them, him, or the a county attorney themselves turn it over to them. The governor stepped in here. He was, in this case, he was right to do. the. Uh, it's really important that justice is done in Hattapen County. And the point I made through the course of the race was that it's unacceptable that we have these county attorneys, and Hattapen County attorney here is a good example, that have embraced this far-left mentality where criminals are not held, being held accountable for their actions. And we've seen that the message go out in Hennepin County and elsewhere, that if you commit serious crime in the state of Minnesota, you can get away with it. And it's because we have had county attorneys send that message. And Mary Moriarty is definitely in that bucket. And so Keith Allison was wrong in the campaign to say that he kind of made this point that, oh, I'm not going to step on a county attorney's shoes and so forth. He was wrong in the campaign on that. And I'm glad that he's come around to the correct view that we have to, that the Attorney General of Minnesota has an important role to play in ensuring justice is done in our counties, in our state. And Mary Ari is a special circumstance. She's someone who temperamentally and, and in terms of her philosophical outlook is completely unfit for office. And we have to ensure that we have an Attorney General and a governor who do step in when she's, when she demonstrates that unfitness.
0: But This was an issue very specifically on the campaign that you discussed this exact scenario. You discussed yep. the fact that the attorney general could play an active role with county attorneys. Yep. And yep. you were criticized for that. Yep. The, the argument that a lot of the critics or the supporters of Ellison made is that you didn't have an understanding of the office. Yep. And here we are now in a very public way. The attorney general is adopting a policy position that you articulated that should be done. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. They said I was, I was didn't understand the role of the office and so forth. And uh, they essentially got the issue. Said I was, it was, just an example of my naivete and, and so forth. And they're, they've show, they've shown that they have either changed their mind or they always knew that what they were saying was false. And now they're coming around to the right side of the issue. I'm glad they did. In some ways, though, I go back a little bit further. Keith was wrong on this in the campaign, but. He was wrong for endorsing Moriarty in the first place. He endorsed her in June of the election cycle. There was a, a Democrat opposing her, Martha Holton-Dimmick, who was a credible opponent to her. She's a Democrat. She certainly I would not subscribe to everything she believes. But she was somebody who took the role of aggressive prosecution seriously in the county. But Keith Ellison endorsed her. He didn't even stay in the sidelines. He endorsed her. And I'll say Tim Walls too. He stood aside in this race. He's you're living through the greatest increase in violent crime in our largest state's largest his largest city in decades. And Tim Walls stood aside in that race, didn't say anything. There were a lot of Democrats who stood up, a lot of mayors and others who stood up and said, Mary Moriarty is not fit to be an county attorney. Tim Walls stood on the sidelines. It was a profile and cowardice in my view. And he should have stood up at that time because those were the two people who could have changed the outcome of that race. Tim Walls and Keith Ellison and both of them were on the wrong side of it. Yeah, I
1: had a quote actually from Ellison here on the campaign trail that where he, talking about you, said he doesn't understand anything no ag has ever done what he's proposing. He was just pretty pretty out there against this and I always hate the example of no one has ever done this so we can't do this as a reason for a policy or for being against a policy in general. But with this speaking to public safety, we've heard we've talked a lot about that being an importance of both walls Ellison our legislators to to speak up to, to speak on and do something about how were folks receptive when you were talking about this on the campaign trail?
2: Yeah, crime's an issue that has touched every part of our state, whether it be folks in rural Minnesota dealing with the fentanyl crisis to folks in the metro dealing with the incredible violent crime. Crisis, and that's part of the reason why we got more votes than any Republican state candidate has ever has in the state, because we did speak to an issue that touches everyone—Republican, Democrat, independent, or otherwise—and uh, and so a lot of people felt felt that. I talked to moms at Edina who who had their had, had, their car their their car their car carjacked. I talked with a woman who's a Hispanic woman whose husband was hit by street racers, hit and killed by street racers. Just a lot of broken people out there by virtue of the fact that we have a lot lot of far left so-called leaders in our state, for everybody from the Minneapolis City Council to other city councils, right on up to the Attorney General's office. That have conducted themselves incredibly recklessly over these past these past years, of course, with the greatest example being the defund the police movement and otherwise. And the Keith has done a number of things to, I think, try to moderate as a result of as a result of the the narrow, extremely narrow win that he was able to pull off. And I think he recognizes that. That, he, that if he wants to be reelected again or to run for another office, including governor, that he needs to change his approach. And he's doing that in this case. He, as you said, as you pointed out, he, he's doing things in the race that he, he aggressively criticized me for. And, and it's just it's indicative of where our state's at.
1: I recently had an op-ed, Republicans can and must win in Minnesota. You just hit on one of the points of your campaign, you getting just shy of 50% of the vote, something that a lot of times... Everybody says oh, Republicans are going to do that. In fact, for this seat in general, you, Republicans have not held the attorney general seat in what is it 60 years, 50 years, 60 years. Yeah. But one thing I want to talk about is... You obviously saw some great success here. Didn't quite, unfortunately, we were, we were really pulling for you to get over that finish line. But you did even outperform President Trump in some areas. Can you speak a little bit to what you and your campaign did to connect with voters, to get your message out there, and to outperform the president Is a pretty heavy feat?
2: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm. it was the outcome of the race was incredibly painful. I got into the race 11 months before the general election, in substantial part because I was just mad as hell. About the direction of our state, about my about my view that we had incredibly reckless leaders from the to bottom that were failing to meet the moment of this what I think is a generational moment in our state. Where if we don't turn it around, our state could become a fundamentally dysfunctional state like an Illinois or a California. And so that's why I got into the race, and I'm I am proud because we got more votes than any Republican candidate, state candidate in history, highest percentage of the vote since Artie Carlson in '94. We won five of the eight congressional in our state. As painful as the outcome of the election was, very proud of that. And I think we did that by by talking about the pe- the issues that were central to the race. And that was crime, the Keith Allison support for defunding the police, that was the feeding our future fraud fraud, that I think fair to say demonstrated remarkable incompetence on the part of the attorney general and other issues that people were desperately looking for change in in that office. And I think that showed showed that in the fact that we got as close as we did demonstrates that. In a year, one thing I point out in the article is that. It was a very mixed year for Republicans nationwide. And so it's not like we had the wave year that we had all hoped for. And if if we did, I'm probably sitting in the attorney general's office right now. And so I think we did that by staying focused on the issues that matter to people's everyday lives. I think we we did that by avoiding distractions around issues that weren't intrinsic to the nature of the attorney general's office and were were not issues that people were focused on in terms of what they want to see from that office. And I think we did that by running just a really effective campaign. I am really fortunate. I think we put together the best campaign team out there. And maybe I, hopefully I'm not offending anybody out there, but I think with the best campaign team in a couple of decades, I'm very proud. If it's one thing that I'm very proud of is putting together the best team and a team that will still talk to me after the race, the race as well here, really close knit. And, and that's, that's a few things to take away. And I am you run You pour your heart and soul into a race, put on tens of thousands of miles all around the state. And I'll say it was one of the more painful experiences in my life to to come up just short. But I think what we did shows that a Republican can win statewide in our state. I pointed out in the article that bar it was 161 votes that if they were to flip in one Senate seat, Republicans would have the state Senate. Five, roughly 500 votes in the House, Republicans would have the state House. We've won majorities in the House and Senate in not in the not too distant future. Minnesota isn't a deep blue state. My wife is from Massachusetts. There, you've got two-thirds majorities, Democrats. You've got, even though you have an occasional Republican governor, you have truly blue states. Minnesota's not that. It's a light blue state. We can win in, the, in in the state in the future, and we have to win in the state in the future because there's 5.7 million people here who deserve better than the policies that are currently being being pushed by I view as the far-left majority and our far-left leadership class in our state. And we have to keep fighting for that state.
0: To that point, do you plan on seeking elected office again in either 2024 or statewide again in 2026? Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell people when, whenever anybody
2: brings it up, I tell them that if I, if my wife knew that I was talking about a prospective race in, in at, at any point in the future, I'm not sure I would wake up the following the following morning. <laughs> but uh, but the I'll say I, I definitely want to stay in the fight. And I certainly will stay in the fight. Whether or not I run for office again will ultimately be, I, it kind of sounds like a politician, but it's really the family piece of it. It is a grueling thing to run a statewide race or really any race. And I've got three young girls, seven, four, and almost two. And in some ways, it's a little bit easier to run a race when they're so young, because everything goes over their heads. The they ads can go over their heads and things like that. It becomes a little bit more complicated as time goes on. But so we'll see. I certainly want to and will stay in the fight one way or another, because I do believe we need fundamental new direction in our state. And so I'm certainly going to keep fighting for it.
0: Would you would you consider running for attorney general again? Would you run for governor? Is there another race that is that an office that is appealing to you?
2: Yeah, I, the,
0: I'm not just saying this. I don't.
2: I, I certainly would be receptive to running for attorney general again or some other statewide office. The uh, it would just it would just be that question on the family piece of it. If we could get it, get it, we could get there from a family perspective. And there's a lot been lots of people who have approached me and said, "Oh, you should run for Senate. You should run for governor. And things like that." And uh, and it's flattering and so forth. But it's just something that we'll have to decide as time goes on.
1: I did have one one question from your op-ed here. I, one of the lines you wrote about was, it says, but with strong and bold leadership, good candidates, and a lot of hard work, everyone who wants to change wants change in our state, we could go a different direction and lead the state towards decades of prosperity. And I 100% agree. I think the million-dollar question is, what tangible things can we do to, a little bit differently than we have been doing? Republicans have had so much struggle over the last... Decade or two, are there folks you met on the road? Are you having meetings? Are you working with to build any coalition? Are there any things that we can hopefully sink some time and effort into? Million dollar question, right now, but any great, wonderful ideas, think items you're working on?
2: Yeah, a, a couple things. So I'd say one thing: the on the DFL side, I think they, I think because it was not expected the DFL would have a good year, but then they still took the House and Senate and then won the governorship decisively. I think they have a remarkable level of, I think it's fair to say arrogance right now. And I think you're seeing that in the legislative, legislative session where I think they're ramming through every far left policy that they had ever hoped for. And a lot of that is far outside of the far outside of the mainstream of Minnesota politics, whether it be tax increases despite a nineteen billion dollar surplus or, or up a demand on demand up until the moment of birth taxpayer funded, by the way, or a 35% spending increase. And so I think they're implementing policies that will, that will be disaster for our state. I wouldn't wish those policies on our state in my in at all. But I do believe on account of that, there there will be receptivity to Republicans in the future that maybe is not quite there right now, because I don't think people when they voted for Democrats and majorities this cycle, I don't think that's what they voted for on the republican side i think we have to you know we have to ensure that we're that we're running running campaigns that match the match the tone match match the, the message and the vision that people in our state have and sometimes i'm not entirely sure that we're always we're always doing that we need leadership from from people to, to ensure that we're delivering a message with the tone and outlook that that people are looking for the sometimes i think the we're not doing that and so i think we have to do that i'm going to be i can't i not quite to the point to announce it, but I'm going to be part of an organization that will be getting off the ground that I think can be part of that of that conversation. And so, more to come on that, and maybe I can come on to t- talk more about that in the in the future. But and then one piece of I'll just i just say is right now Republicans. You, there's a couple ways to get out your message. Two of them are one, earned media, getting it from the WCCO's, the Star Tribunes, and so forth. And of course, the media in our state our state broadly is pretty luck leaning, and so you know you're, you're going to get you're going to get some something from that, not a whole lot but then there's paid media. And right now, Republicans are getting crushed on the fundraising side. There's $90 million that Democrats had this cycle that Republicans didn't, $130 million to $40 million roughly. And Republicans have to find some means to deal with the fact that the Democrats who've aligned themselves closely with corporate America, with the wealthiest in society, that we have to find a way to be competitive, despite the fact that we're just getting crushed when it comes to spending.
0: Is there a policy... When it comes to putting the party in the best position to win, is there a policy uh, change that needs to be made with the Republicans and their platform or the issues that they're talking about to connect more with voters that you think would benefit uh, during this as we're in this time, as we're leaning up to the presidential race, we're not going to have a, the governor's race, the attorney general's race won't be for until 2026, but is there a policy issue or something related to how the party presents itself in its platform that Republicans should be looking at in this off time before our next statewide governor's race to be looking at examining and reevaluating their position on
2: yeah it's a good it's a good question i think the i think a party a political party needs to it's got a set of fundamental principles that it needs to stay that it needs to stay consistent on and not surrender i think you you do have to continue evaluating yourself as a as a party consider are we really are we speaking to the issues that are central to people's lives And and so I think we have to keep that in focus as as time goes on, because ultimately, I'm a very person animated by principles. I'm a lawyer. I I can geek out on the Constitution like any like anybody else. Um, Alongside that, though, we've got to make sure we say focus like a laser beam on the people that we're there to serve, that we we want whose lives we want to change. I'm a believer. I believe that every person is a child of God. And that of infinite worth that deserves, that deserves safe and healthy communities, that deserves a job where they can provide for their family, that deserves really these really fundamental things. And, and I think we got to make sure that we're focused like a laser beam on, on ensuring that people's, that even as people's rights are protected and defended and things like that, all, that we're speaking to the other issues that are really fundamental to their day-to-day lives.
0: That's great. Uh, how, what do you think the chances are for Republicans in recapturing the White House in 2024?
2: That's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. I think Joe Biden is a very weak incumbent. He should be very, very beatable. You look at you can even look at the poll numbers and see and see that Republicans got to make sure that we walk through the door. That it is an open door. Republicans can win that race. We've got to make sure that we that we that we that we put forward a message, a vision, a candidate that can that can win. We have to win. Joe Biden, I believe, is a disaster for for our country in many different ways. And you see it on the international on the international scale. You see it on domestic policy. We need a change in that office. Whether it's Joe Biden running again or Kamala Harris, whoever. And Republicans got to make sure that we win. That we win that race.
0: Wonderful. We want to thank you for your time. I have just one, two quick more, and then we'll let you go. I want to just clear, clarify something. I was looking at your bio on your website, and you worked at the Clearwater Travel Plaza. I did hands down my favorite gas station in all the state of Minnesota. The well, donuts there are the size of basketballs.
2: They are, they are, and yes, I, I worked there. It was my second job ever. My first job was to tasseling seed corn in in around Clearwater. I detassled corn too. Yes, yeah. It's a, I learned how to work hard in uncomfortable conditions. For people who haven't done it, it you're walking through cornfields a mile long in ninety degree heat and humidity and It's always, the corn's always wet with dew in the beginning of the day. It's wet. Yes. It's 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 an incredibly uncomfortable, uncomfortable job. And so I graduated from that to washing dishes at the Clearwater Travel Plaza. And uh, yeah, I would actually have for lunch, this goes, it was in high school. This goes to show that my my health habits at the time, I would just have one of those big donuts for lunch some days. uh, and, uh, And
0: so, yeah. I did corn to tasseling too. Jock Seed Company is where I did corn to tasseling for. I did it too. My wife is from Iowa. I always say that I probably did more farming than she did those summers I did corn to tasseling. That's hard work.
2: Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I worked for Wentzman Seed in Clearwater there. And uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's very hard work. And for guys. We, we both have farming backgrounds then. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Exactly I was gonna say too, for a guy who's as, as pale as I am too, I would come home just beat red every day, every day too.
0: One last question I have for you. Becky and I are gonna be having this debate offline or on later in the podcast, but <laughs> it's Easter Sunday. Ham is served. Your take on ham.
2: Oh ham is great. Ham's oh. ham, it's a great it's it. it's, it's, it's Thank I'm you Becky, yeah, you're on the same page. Yeah, yeah. The ham is great. I would say way better than turkey. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, ham and mashed potatoes and everything on Easter, yeah. Can't, can't.
0: I'm disappointed, sir. And, and I hope you enjoyed your one appearance on the breakdown. <laughs> with Brock no, that was, we're going to be having that debate. I think ham is overrated. We got to have diverse opinions. That's what this podcast is all about is talking with people about real issues. But I'm glad we cleared the air on that. I'll make a note in my file on, on you. Well, sir, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to talk with us. And as you stay active in the party side, first of all, I want to thank you for writing that op-ed and getting that out. Thank you for running. I hope you consider running again. And as, you're, as you stay more active and you get more visibility with what you're doing, I hope you consider coming back and talking with us again.
2: Loved it. Great to, great to be with you guys. Thanks for the invitation. We'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. That
0: was just garbage. Hey, I, didn't even,
1: I didn't even plan that ahead of time. I just got to win.
0: That's great. That was a great interview. I think that he, a couple points. I don't want to read between, I don't want to put words in his mouth and read between the lines. But- I think that if both Ryan Wilson and Jim Schultz would have had better candidates for secretary of state and governor, both of them would have been elected. I think both now, Ryan Wilson and Jim Schultz would have been elected.
1: For the record, those are the two of the four statewide candidates, two of the four statewide candidates that you endorsed, and the only two Republicans.
0: Correct. Yep. All right. Oh, that's a, I just wanted to make that point.
1: I just subtly claim again that you.
2: But I think it's true.
0: If you look at if you look at the numbers, both Ryan Wilson and Jim Schultz ran close races, Uh, and they and Scott Jensen and Kim Crockett ran campaigns not disciplined they talked about a variety of issues in bad ways we've talked about in the past particularly Scott Jensen on abortion was just a horrible and i think you look at the, the part of the reason why the election results were so devastating for republicans on election night was because of the campaign that scott jensen and in some ways kim crockett ran scott jensen ran such a bad campaign that kim crockett outperformed him kim crockett got more votes that's how bad of a campaign he ran
1: one of the things that jim said that really stood out to me was about knowing about messaging in a way for people to care. He made, brought up that he's a lawyer. He could talk about the Constitution with anybody, anytime, anywhere. I could too. I love talking Constitution. Maybe we'll do an episode about it sometime. But for the average bear, that's not something that's going to connect with them and get them to the polls, get them energized. A lot of people, sure. Not the majority average Minnesota voter. And I think that's what you and I speak a lot to about main crux of our messaging issues is that. We're just not talking about what Minnesota voters, Minnesota families need to hear.
0: You're spot on. That was a great interview, and I look forward to having you back. We'll spend just a minute or so on this final subject before we get to our favorite part, which is the tweet of the week. Becky, I have some concerns, uh, questions about uh, some comments you made on social media. I made a very thoughtful statement about. Easter dinner. It was Easter this past week. Happy to all those who celebrate and those who observe. But ham is a mainstay at Easter dinner, and I've used my social media platform to to be candid, be honest, to speak my truth. And my truth is that ham is overrated; that it's not a main dish. You chimed in right away with with feedback that, that you are a ham person, and so I'd like you to give I'd like to give you the floor and all the safe space that you need to explain to the listeners why you're so wrong about about ham.
1: Ham is delicious. It is always juicy. It is a salty little treat, and turkey's no. dry. Turkey's dry. It's gross. You don't get to know what the best meal of the day is? Breakfast. Know what goes great with breakfast? Ham. You don't have a turkey omelet or a turkey breakfast sandwich. Ham. Ham all the way. Ham is delicious. Ham can be on pizza. Turkey doesn't go on pizza. Ham is more versatile. Ham is. Hold on. Let's look at also, just if we really bring it back to the fact, because of course I have to come prepared for every topic that we're going to discuss. Did you know that ham has been used or eaten since 6th and 5th century BC, whereas turkey has only been eaten since the 16th century?
0: You are a nerd. You are such (laughs) a nerd. I cannot believe you did show prep on ham versus turkey. Um, Yeah, I think ham is... Ham, as I said, it's a good it's a good opening act. It's not the main act. It's not standalone.
1: You want some like ham? As you're gonna have instead of a salad, you're gonna have a little ham before you eat your turkey. Oh,
0: a couple of things. I will rarely. I will sometimes have a ham sandwich. Very rare if it's like leftover. But ham can accompany other meats and a cold cuts kind of sandwich of some sort bacon and other forms of, on, on pizza, Canadian bacon, other types of ham products. I, but as a standalone dish, I don't. I, it just doesn't do anything for me. It never has, never will. I think turkey is much better, both in flavor and the general kind of arraignment and presentation of it, I just think is so much better. And I think ham is overrated. And it's just about time people learn the truth about that. I will say that food takes is a subject we should discuss at some point, because I got a, I got a fair number of responses to that tweet. So I think food takes are something that we should discuss, but uh, ham, yeah. So you Easter Sunday, you had ham.
1: Okay, here's the deal. No, I didn't cook. I was at the in-laws. We had a lovely tray of lasagna, and it was delicious. Huh. It, we went non-traditional, okay?
0: But on Thanksgiving, you'll have turkey, right? You don't have to I, I like that. You're, I'm
1: not cooking it. I do prefer ham, turkey though. You, so you're telling me you like turkey is not dried out for you?
0: Well, not if it's prepared the right way. Ham can be right. dried out, but not prepared the right way. Everything and ham doesn't also ham it, the glaze, all that stuff. It just it's just too much for me. Mm-hmm. It's just too much. No, turkey's where it's at. I will say,
1: uh, my sister though, ever since we were young, hates ham. So we did always. My mom always either made a little chicken or turkey for her because ham's my favorite. She's a anti ham gal.
0: I'm not. I'm also not opposed to this. Last a couple of Thanksgivings, there's been a ham there, which I'm fine with because that leaves more turkey for me, and so I'm fine with there being like a backup ham. Or to help with the meal overall, but not a standalone. Ham is I need terrible. i to put I out remember. a
1: poll from at BB Break Pod and, and let the people speak.
0: Let the people speak, yep. And it's a good thing I run that account.
1: So we
0: am going to let the people speak. All right. Our closing subject, Tweet of the Week.
1: I had one. I do want to give an honorable mention to at Mr. Kilowatt, who said best that last week was our best podcast yet. He has different, Clay says he has different politics than all four of us on it. And Tom Hauser ain't got nothing on us. But that's my honorable mention. My actual tweet of the week is from a woman, Rohita Kadabi. And she says, think you're anti-woke? Elmo has literally never used a pronoun. And then she has a bunch of memes of, excuse Elmo, but Elmo is three and a half. And what can Elmo say? It was Elmo's nap time. Elmo made a new friend. And I just thought it was clever. And the general gender pronoun conversation that we have, Elmo doesn't use pronouns. Good for Elmo.
0: Yeah. My tweet of the week is from Darwin Forseth, who did communications and some work on Governor Tim Walz's race. He made a point, by the way, who and I did endorse Tim Walls for governor. Oh, right? yeah. So my, I missed my opportunity. should bring it up. He tweeted about Mary Moriarty's press conference. He said, Mary Moriarty's press conference today surpassed my worst pre-election suspicions of what kind of a county attorney she'd be. Comparing Tim Walls and Keith Ellison to Ron DeSantis and Scott Jensen is preposterous and a self-defeating move. Now, a couple points I'll make about that. I think Darwin is a sharp operator, a sharp political operator, and follow him on social media. He raises a good, but the point though was, is Moriarty had a press conference piggybacking back to our interview with Jim Schultz, which we just had, which was just great. She was frustrated with Ellison and Walls for their move to get involved in the, that court case and take the case away from her, case from her. Mary already brought up a very good point in the press conference, which is she was following through on what she said she would do as a, as a county attorney, and she felt that Ellison and to some degree Walls were breaking their word. And I thought it was a, I thought it wasn't not an unreasonable point but I think she went way too far in comparison Ellison and Walls to DeSantis, Desantis and Jensen, and I think that it, I think it's going it, it's foreshadowing a bit of a fight in the DFL side when it comes to progressives on their position on justice, reformative justice, and how we please stuff. So it's my tweet of the week has a little bit of a political bent that I think is going to lead us into future episodes. So thank you for coming again this week, Becky.
1: You know, I'll keep coming back.
0: We want to thank thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Brad and Becky. Before we go, we'd like to remind you again to show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast or any platform where you listen. You can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. We're also on Twitter at bbbreakpod. Again, Twitter at, at bbbreakpod. I want to thank everyone again. Becky, thank you so much. We will return next week. See you then. See ya.